What's up, everybody? I am really, really excited about this particular podcast episode because for the first time ever, my wife, Jen, is joining me on a podcast. In fact, it's the first time she's ever been on a podcast. And we're going to be reviewing our time at the OVMS Show of Shows in Louisville, Kentucky. This is the largest military show in the world. And we had an amazing time there. Uh, looking forward to getting back in the future. We'll talk about that. But on this episode, we're going to talk about things we saw and uh, enjoyed along the way. And we hope that you enjoy this episode and get something out of it. And maybe one day you will also go to the OVMS show of shows or another show that they put on. You're going to hear this through the eyes of a historian and an artist and people who just work in the humanities in general or who are interested in the humanities. And again, hope you get a lot out of this conversation between me and my lovely wife, the Jaunty Crow, Jen. Well, everybody, I am really happy to have a very special guest on here uh, that's this is her debut on a podcast, right? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is my wife, Jen. You may also know her as the Jaunty Crow, and uh, she is my partner in crime, and we just got done with a major road trip. How was the road trip, Jen? It was excellent. It was amazing. I got to see so many things and so many different vendors. I highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't been there at least once in their life. It was a great time, and we're we're talking about the OVMS show of shows, the Ohio Val Ohio Valley Military Society's show of shows in Louisville, Kentucky. This is the largest military show in the world. At least they bill it that way. It felt like it, didn't it? It really did. I mean, it's it's such an expansive show. You really need at least two days to see everything, and even then, there's still some things you might miss. Yeah, so Jen and I got there on Wednesday, and uh, I used to be a member, and I let it lapse and uh, due to personal reasons. And then I decided since she got into it, we might as well become a member again. So we got early bird views of this, and we got in on Thursday at noon, and we beat the crowd. So that was always a good thing. But uh, Jen, what made you want to go to the show of shows? I just wanted to see the stuff. I wanted to look at all the things that people had acquired over the years. And even though most of it was not things that I would personally collect and definitely couldn't afford, I just wanted to see all of it spread out in its glory, all the variety that was there. And it was really interesting. Some of it was so high-end, it was like seeing a traveling museum. Uh, I myself am sort of a novice collector, although I'm more into modern warfare, like things that fall under global war on terrorism. But I do like things from World War One, so I was looking for things that might catch my eye from that period. Yeah, there's plenty of it, and it's a lot, like you say, it's a lot like a museum in many cases, especially when you can't afford it, and you just look at it and uh, think of the inspiration that it gives you if it does, and then you, you move on to the next thing. Uh, but what we decided to do for everyone listening in today is we wanted to kind of do a little mini review of it, but also showcase our choices for different categories. Uh, this has been a kind of a theme on my YouTube channel where we've done top three stuff. 
Jen and I decided that uh, maybe we should talk about different categories of stuff we saw that you may see if you ever decide to go to the show shows. And if you're into history or collecting uh, anything like that, you may want to consider going to this just once. Get it off your bucket list because it is fantastic. It is a good time. And there's a ton of people for you to meet. Uh, but we... we Got there on Thursday and checked in and went inside. And what were your immediate impressions, Jen, when you walked into the hall for the first time? Lots and lots of people. <laughs> Although very uh, well queued up people, it was very well maintained. And um, people were queuing in very well. The badging process was easy. So um, I recommend that location. Uh, definitely like that expo center. Yeah, the Kentucky Expo Center is a fantastic facility. Plenty of parking. It is huge. And there's sometimes three shows going on at one time, so it's a great thing. Uh, this year, for me, it was a little bit different simply because it looked like they swapped the lettering of the the uh, different aisles. You used to go to the right, and I think that was the A aisle, and Z was all the way on the left. And I think they flip-flopped it now, and it kind of threw me off when I had some friends tell me what aisles they're in, and I got it a little bit backwards. Uh, but so we started off going out over to the left and started off the, up the aisles and uh, met some people we knew almost immediately and got underway and tried not to spend all of our money in like the first three rows. Uh, but uh, what was something that you really, really enjoyed seeing, Jen, that's the, that was like the overall experience for you, it, it made it really come to life for you. What did you enjoy seeing there in general? Oh my goodness. Well, just narrowing it down to one table or object is going to be kind of difficult. So I'm going to cheat here and say that um, the vendor who brought their three rabbits, including a Flemish giant, that kind of made it for me. I mean, everything else was excellent, but that was like the cherry on the top, seeing three really chill bunnies in this very <laughs> unlikely place. Yeah, that definitely was different. Uh, they weren't out on, on Thursday, but they made their appearance on Friday. And uh, Jen was determined to go see these rabbits. That was going to be her highlight. And it definitely was a highlight because I've always wanted a Flemish giant. But it's always neat to see the different vendors and what animals they have with them that brings them joy. Sometimes you see the Yorkies and sometimes you see rabbits and, and our stuff like that. So that was a lot of fun. But as I said, we wanted to go over certain categories for you today as far as uh, what we found to be, let's say, the funniest or the most unique, the most unexpected. And we're going to go down the list and, and talk about where we saw these things and, and what we thought of them. And I think to start it off, what should we start with? What category should we start with? Okay, I came up with a lot of categories for most memorable at the show, but I'm going to start with the one that I have dubbed most inconvenient to own. And there's mm. quite a lot of things that are rather impractical to own due to size or it's fragile. Mm -hmm. uh, people like us who have a two-bedroom apartment definitely can't own a lot of this stuff. But without a doubt, the most inconvenient to own artifact that we saw was a real World War I air balloon basket. So you can imagine how large something like that is. Yes. I mean, the cat would love it, <laughs> but it is... It was huge. And just think of a regular what you see like on TV with balloon baskets. It's it's a little bit smaller than that. It's kind of it looked like it was square instead of rectangular, but that thing was big, and uh, I wouldn't want that in the in our little two bedroom apartment. But the cat would probably want it. This seemed like 
it was more designed as a museum acquisition, mm-hmm. just to get the word out that this existed and that um, somebody could acquire it if they so chose. If somebody did get that for their home, I'm guessing that they had a rather large residency. Yeah, and, and, and Jen underscores something that we need to consider. It's not just collectors who are going to these, but there are people from museums going to these shows to do acquisitions. And uh, I've actually been asked a couple times in, in the past to work as an acquisition, uh, kind of like a an agent, if you will, or a scout to try to find stuff. And uh, so people like that were roaming around, and they probably looked at that balloon basket and wondered uh, what museum that might work for. So that's that's a really good pick, though. I mean... Who, who can really own that? So that's a pretty interesting pick. I actually picked the World War I balloon basket as the most unique thing I saw at the show. I've never seen something like that before at a military show. Usually they're in a museum or they have just disintegrated or been destroyed. And this thing would look really nice. And I, I thought that would be an amazing piece for... Uh, a World War One museum or a military museum when they are looking for World War One pieces. So I put that actually as my most unique piece. Uh, I didn't have one for, hey, I wish I had the space for this thing. So my, that one under most unique. What was your most unique, Jen? You had one too. For most unique, I was going to say a vendor who was selling World War One trench marks trench art among other things i've uh, bought from this vendor before so i was really pleased to go back and the item i thought was most unique was world war one beaded snakes and these were from the ottoman empire made by pow's and the reason i think they're unique is both their construction and their place of origin typically when you think of trench art you think of metalwork you think of trench vases uh, things made out of shells or other bits of metal like a mess tin. But these were really meticulous beadwork. And um, I'd never seen anything like that before. And I'd definitely never seen trench art that came from the Ottoman Empire. I believe these were Turkish in or- origin. Um, so that's why I would say those are unique. Just having never seen anything quite like it within that genre before. I didn't buy any because I really didn't have any place to display it. But... Um, Maybe in the future, that'll be one of my acquisitions. Who knows? You bought off them previously. You bought a piece that was made by a POW, right? Or a soldier that was convalescing? Yes, I did. I actually made a Instagram post about it. It was a matchbook case, and there are a lot of those available for sale. This one I bought because it told a story. I like pieces that tell a story, and that's why I'm into trench art. This one was made by a German POW being held by American Expeditionary Forces, And uh, clearly this person must have been um, treated quite well if they gave him materials to craft with. But uh, I would guess he also had a decent enough sense of humor because in German he had inscribed memories of captivity. And I believe there was even a little flower inscribed on that. So I had to get it because there was something that was um, just so humorous about that, but it also told of this person's circumstances. Mm. And everybody, if you're hearing a little bit of a thump in the background, we have a very lively cat today. She's got the zoomies. She does have the She's zoomies. very excited for military antiques. Yes, and she's wondering what all this equipment is hanging out in the living room today. So yes, our, our cat Leia is having some zoomies and playing in an Ikea bag right now. So I won't cut that out because that's part of the ambiance of hanging with us here in the apartment. She is the jaunty cat. She is the jaunty cat, yes. Uh, 
so we, we touched on the balloon basket. We touched on some of the trench art, a little bit of the trench art. Uh, I want to go to a category that I think a lot of people are going to be interested in, and that is a thing that is completely unexpected that we saw there. A thing when we walked in the hall, we didn't think we would see anything like this at a show uh, before. So was there anything that was completely unexpected for you when you walked in and you're like, I never thought I'd see this at this show? Uh-oh, I stomped her. I stomped her. Well, I'm I'm trying to think what would fall into that category because there's some where they fall into multiple categories. Uh-huh. Most unexpected, I would say uh, the painted portrait of Saddam and a camel. Oh. It was... Um, I guess it was unexpected because usually when you think of pictures of Saddam, it's um, it's um, usually a photograph mm-hmm. or um, in light of the global war on terror, it's usually a newspaper picture where he looks very haggard and he's emerging from that spider hole. But this, this was a painting that was very staged and uh, had hung previously in the palace. And I believe there was a translated note from the original painter exalting the great leader and giving his reasons for painting it. But um, that was interesting to see, especially because it was accompanied by actual letters, uh, presumably by people in the palace or people who had been under his regime. I didn't really get a good chance to look at that, but uh, the painting definitely stood out because, um, I mean, it's Saddam with a camel. It's very iconic. Yes, there was also like posters of Saddam lounging and and uh, GQ Saddam and, and stuff like that going on. So Very versatile. Yes, yes. There was something for everybody if you're a Saddam Hussein, uh, I don't want to say fan. All the moods of Saddam. Yes, but if you study Saddam and you want that particular piece, they had it right there. I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to shift this in a dramatically different way for my unexpected thing. And I'm going to go for the CIA rectal pod. Yes, that was uh, a great one. They, there were tools inside of it and like, you know. Things, sharp tools. Sharp tools, things to solve your way out of prison and, and or whatever the case may be, maybe a handcuff key, I don't know. But it was a little rectal pod, which didn't look so little to me when I figured out what it was for. And I wondered where the lube was for it because <laughs> it's like this is not going to go over well. But I've never seen a CIA rectal pod before. Just close your eyes and think of America. Yeah, yeah. It was it was something I don't want to picture having to use. Uh, but it, it thankfully, it looked clean. It was nicely displayed. The tools looked awesome in it. Uh, it was just one of those things where it's like I had no idea that I would come in here today and see something like that. Uh, but that's what that's the beauty of going to a big show like that is that you have vendors from a, literally around the world. We met a vendor from Sweden. Uh, we met people from California. We met people from Canada. We met people from other places in Europe. And you never know what they're going to find in their area, like going to estate sales, yard sales, people they know, they pick from. Someone found this CIA rectal pod, and someone's probably going to buy that because it's a thing they're into maybe I'm history not, of espionage is a yeah thing. yeah the spy museum or people who are really into cia stuff are, are gonna buy that it's not for me but i thought that was the most unexpected thing of the show and i think you saw it first and pointed it out to me um, did i it seems yeah it's, it totally seems um on point with me to be the one to find that first yes yes what uh what category do you want to go to next jen well since we've already gone there 
I think it's appropriate for us to bring up what we both deemed the most funny. Yes. Uh, do you want to tell this one or do you want me to go into it? I would like to hear your description of this for the people. All right. So um, the most funny by far, and I would even wager to say most unique as well, was, um, for lack of a better description, it was this small, flat, little pull-string puppet thing that somebody had probably made themselves, just one of a kind, and it was depicting Joseph Stalin buggering Adolf Hitler in the butt <laughs> as he reads Mein Kampf. Yes. It wasn't just the aforementioned action that made it funny. It was the fact that Hitler was also reading his own book. Mm. And that sent mm. John and I into some rather uproarious fits of laughter. We wanted to know who was going to buy it. It was at least $400. Right. Um, I'd really like to meet the person who wants that in their collection. Yeah. Yeah, it was $425. And when you have something like that, which people probably have never seen before, you can put any kind of price on it that you want because it's kind of like, where are you going to find another one? But we saw that and immediately we started to to laugh, obviously. And we wondered what Hitler was reading. And obviously it was Mein Kampf. Uh, so to see that and to know someone put in some time and effort to make this tiny thing, it was probably uh, it was probably about four, four inches by two inches. So it wasn't a very big kind of pool thing, like a toy or a, or a propaganda piece. But it was enough to make you understand what the story was and uh, behind it, and no pun intended with the behind part. Uh, but it was it was fantastic, and we laughed about that. And it was probably one of those things. If I had a lot of disposable income, I probably would have bought it just to put it on display. But that was a lot of fun, and that was that was under my funniest column, uh, like funniest objects that we found. Anything anti-axis, anti-fascist. Any kind of uh, you know anti-Hitler cartoons and stuff like that. Jen and I are really into that. Her from the artistic view and me just from the trolling view. Uh, but it's, it's artistic trolling. Yes, artistic trolling. Yes, we, we we make a good pair for that. For anyone who's not aware of it, uh, Adolf Hitler really hated being lampooned, and the U.S. Mm. definitely used this to their advantage. I have a book on it somewhere, and of course I can't remember the title but it's all about that subject how the allies were lampooning the axis powers and uh it really got to him apparently um he censored all that and uh didn't want anyone to see that didn't want uh he didn't want to see that uh you you could say he was pretty fragile about that sort of thing <laughs> he was definitely fragile about that sort of thing and uh, which makes it all the more funny that we can now look at it and and not have anything uh, happen to us. Uh, thank God the war went the, the proper way. But yeah, there are plenty of anti-Axis, anti-Hitler, anti-Mussolini. There are a couple pieces there. I thought there were more Mussolini pieces at this show than I saw at the previous one. The Chin of Chins. Yes, the Chin of Chins. And uh, it was good to see that there though that we're starting to see more stuff coming out of the coming out of the woodwork and i would like to say that from previous years there was a lot less russian stuff and i would think that's probably because of what is going on in ukraine and uh the kind of the our flawed relationship with them getting worse and worse and worse 
And so I think maybe that maybe that market took a dive, but I'm not sure. I was wondering about that too, because I think the people who collect that, who reenact that, um, they're probably going to continue collecting that for, um, you know, their own personal enjoyment. And, um, so I don't think people who specialize in that took a hit, but, um, as John said, we really didn't see that much Soviet at the show. It was primarily German World War II and, um, occasionally things that were um, Japanese in regards to Axis powers in World War II. But Soviet, um, from what uh, John tells me, it used to be more of a bigger market at these shows and now not so much. Mm -hmm. It used to be, yeah. I saw a lot more Soviet in previous years. Now, I haven't been to the show of shows since 2018, so it's been five years. A lot has happened in five years. And... uh, we often see this in the history field. It also is relevant in the collector field. What is going on in popular culture or, uh, or politics of anything, geopolitics, can influence the market. And I think this is a kind of an offshoot of what is going on in Eastern Europe that maybe we're starting to see a little bit less uh, Russian stuff on the market, at least in, in the private or in the public sphere, excuse me. I don't think we're seeing a big hit of that like on eBay or anything like that, but I think we're seeing it with some of the vendors. Uh, we don't see it as much. Which brings me to what do you think was the most redundant thing of the show? We're saying the Russian stuff wasn't there like it used to be, at least in my opinion. I could be wrong, but I saw less Soviet than previous. What do you think was the most redundant? We saw it over and over and over again. I'm going to go with your pick on this one, which was all the German World War II daggers. Mm. And don't get me wrong, there were some beautiful, beautiful swords and daggers, really high quality museum and stuff. But as far as redundancy, there was a lot of it. And um, some of it was, you know, not that interesting. And I think just the mass amount of it is what really watered it down for me. Yeah, and we have to be careful, too, with that stuff because there are a lot of knockoffs. And some people really don't know the difference between original and a reproduction. Uh, they're being you know, knocked off all the time, and you have to be very careful. There are some great books out there, if you're into that sort of thing, to study the intricacies of these daggers and like the, how they are stamped and the lengths of the blades and how the blades are produced so you don't get ripped off. Uh, but we did see it over and over and over again. We saw a lot of people, a lot of vendors, uh, trying to make money on these daggers. And uh, I don't know if it's because it's a hot commodity, if it's the thing that catches people's eyes. I'm not sure. Uh, but we saw a lot of that. And I like like she said, she took my pick, and that's fine. Uh, so that was my pick as well, is all the, all the Nazi daggers that were there. We saw some, uh, dare I say, we saw some beautiful swords that were produced in Germany uh, in the World War I, World War II era. I really, you know, enjoy those, but I'm not a knife guy. But the swords were were different to see. And um, because of that, we had a category called disposable income purchase. And, uh, or excuse me, high-end, high-end. I'll go to disposable income later. High-end stuff. This leads back into the Nazi dagger thing, and I want to give a a tip of the cap to Thomas Whitman, who you may see on YouTube. He does a lot of videos. He has for years 
from the show of shows. He's trying to get more people into the show of shows and into the OVMS sphere, if you will. He is one of the people that is the most trusted with uh, World War II German military. And uh, the most high-end stuff I saw at the show were in his booth. And uh, that's because he's one of the most highly trusted. He knows what he's looking for, and he does all the documentation. And some of the stuff was just amazing. And again, something I wouldn't own, but something I would want to see in a museum uh, or expect to see in a museum. So what about your high-end pick? Were there any high-end items that you can remember, Jen, that were like, wow, this is more than I expected this to be, uh, but it's amazing, or I expect to see this in a museum? Like you, I was very impressed by the swords. It was really like a traveling museum, just the way it was displayed, the lighting, the cases, really beautiful. I would say that my other uh, high-value picks were some of the pickle halba. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> they, I mean... They just look very regal and important, mm -hmm. generally speaking. But there were some that were very good condition, very high end, very expensive, but nonetheless enjoyable to see. I'm a big Pickle Hobble fan. And uh, I love I love how they look. And it's just would be really cool to sit in, a, in an office, you know, on a stand or something. But they're out of my price range. So used to be not that way. We could buy them pretty regularly, but here again is the market fluctuation in militaria. Sometimes things hit and the price goes up tremendously and sometimes they just stay stagnant for a while. But I guess it's time for pickle hobbas to be the hot commodity too. Uh, what about all the German helmets? That was my pick for disposable income. If I had disposable income, I would get the World War One like bring back trophy helmets from the AEF guys. That's always been a big thing with me for my World War One generation guys. And there were some German helmets there from the First World War alongside the Pickle Hobbles. Uh And they're great pieces to have, great conversation pieces. Sometimes they're connected to a battle or a site. Uh, one that I saw was a German helmet that was picked up at Ypres. And uh, that would definitely been one I would have wanted. Uh, there were some there that were also dug and so we're starting not to see just bringbacks or trophies. We're starting to see dug artifacts from the Western Front. And believe me, there's going to be a tremendous amount of that in the future. Uh, if you had disposable income, Jen, to get something there that you uh, would have loved to have had, what would have been your pick? I have to pick just one thing. Okay. Oh, it was more than one thing. There was, there was a lot of things I was eyeing covetously is that a word covetously oh, well i was i was coveting a lot of things knowing that i was not going to blow the money on it mm -hmm. but one of the things that stood out to me was an afghan jazelle there were a lot mm -hmm. of guns there and i'm not really a gun gal but because i like uh war on terror stuff and war in afghanistan uh type things that stood out to me for those who are not uh, familiar a jazelle is a uh, flintlock rifle but what makes it unique to me anyway is that um it has a lot of beautiful inlay there's um like uh various stones worked into the wood mm -hmm. it is a beautiful piece it kind of reminds me of uh, uh some of the middle eastern things like you see in lawrence of arabia and stuff like that it just really beautiful artistic works of of uh gun manufacturing 
and such. And uh, I'm no longer a gun guy. I used to have plenty, uh, but I'm not anymore. I kind of transitioned to material culture, but definitely something that is, you know, one of those things where if people have disposable income and are into Middle Eastern stuff or North African, that's really a cool piece yeah. for them to have. And as far as I know, that was the only one of its kind there. There was a lot of firearms, but that was the only thing I noticed that mm -hmm. seemed to be from the Middle East in origin. I think that was the only Giselle I saw there, yeah. I, I didn't see another one. There were plenty of artifacts from Africa, North Africa, stuff like that, hanging around, especially, obviously, German, Africa core stuff. But, yeah, as far as that kind of stuff, that was the only one I really saw. Mm -hmm. um, what uh, What category did we not say yet, Jen, that you have something on your list? Because we're going down this list and people are wondering what's next. And everyone, for if if uh, I want to give you a slight reminder here, that Jen and I went to the OVMS show of shows in Louisville, Kentucky. Thoroughly enjoyed ourselves. We only got through the show once. Uh, between Thursday, we did four hours. Friday, we did about six hours. No, I'm sorry, we did about five hours. So it took us nine hours to go around the show one time, and uh, so that tells you how large this is. And we decided to come up with these categories to try to figure out what is what with the thing. And maybe you'll come up with your own when you visit. Uh, Jen, what is a category that you have written down that I may have missed so far? I created the category called most aggressive looking. Now, mm -hmm. this was a tie because there were um, there was lots of decommissioned ordnance of varying sizes. Uh, I believe I saw it was a mock... Uh, Claymore mine, so that was pretty aggressive looking. Mm. But I would say the thing that stuck out as the most aggressive looking was a flamethrower. Oh, yeah. I saw two of those. There was yeah. two? Okay. Yeah, there were two there. Yeah, they're, they're definitely aggressive looking. Mm -hmm. Luckily, they have holes in the tanks. You can't just go out and use it. No. Uh, it's demilled, as they would say in the in the circles. Uh, but yeah, definitely something radical to see there. Uh, I, uh, it was one of those things where I had some disposable income a few years ago and I thought about buying one just to be that guy. Now, where were you going to keep that? I was going to keep it in the living room of as course. a conversation piece. Mm -hmm. and uh, Jungle you know, gym for the cat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I had one, uh, you know, Leia could jump all over it. That's fine. She's not going to hurt it. Uh, but yeah, I actually thought about getting one a few years ago, just to be that guy. Uh, I was still doing World War II reenacting, and I thought, what the hell? Maybe I'll do a flamethrower impression. Uh, but luckily, I didn't buy it, <laughs> because then I'd have that thing to move around. And that's not going to go look well going over the border when uh, when I go to university in Canada. That's probably not going to be able to go over. Uh, my aggressive-looking artifact would be a demilled 50 caliber machine gun it was an absolutely huge piece they had 50 cal uh ammunition sitting beside it and when you get up close to a 50 cal machine gun that is just an amazing experience uh we sometimes see them on top of uh, jeeps or uh, tanks stuff like that and it's really interesting to see it laid out on an eight foot table at a military show in pieces uh, so that was probably, other than the flamethrower, uh, that was that would be my choice for most aggressive looking. Uh, 
because uh, you don't see that every day. And it's really neat to see that kind of stuff in a show like that. Uh, any other categories that you have chosen for us? Those are all my categories that I came up with. Mm. The rest just went under things I want but can't afford or don't have space for. Oh, okay. What are some of those? Well, you were there when we um, discovered this. There was a Austro-Hungarian album of photos and postcards from World War One and some from 1920. And that really interested me from um, just a human story aspect because I'd never seen a photo album that had both the pictures and the postcards. So it was a combination of those photos and the text. The uh, cover of that photo album was really nice. It was just one of those things where I didn't really want to spend the money on something that was in a language I would then have to transcribe and then translate digitally. Mm. And they can be a little tough to maintain. Yeah. Because uh, they're not archivally kept. They're very fragile. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to worry about the glue coming through uh, the photos over time or falling out or being bent. And It was holding up pretty well considering its age. I'll give it that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not knocking people who collect it. And I would surely not talk you out of getting it. It's just one of those things where uh, we probably have to take extra precaution to make sure it's it's taken care of definitely doable and uh, shout out to all my friends who have done that before have collected that kind of stuff and place it in archival boxes and and just be the big nerds that we are when we collect these things uh there were a couple japanese photo albums there that looked really nice too there was and uh, we looked through those uh jen i have to ask you this if you set up at a military show like the ovms what would you sell? What would be well, the thing you'd be into where you're like, I'm into this, but I also want to sell it? I don't really have enough in my personal collection to sell. Well, but no, it, but if, but, you, but if, if, if I did, stuff. if I did, right. I would want to sell World War One trench art or more modern trench art. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would want to sell things from the global war on terror because mm-hmm. it is it has become a historic event now. It started 20-something years ago, 2001. Mm-hmm. And um, I know a lot of the items probably aren't worth anything or worth much yet because it's still too recent, but it's also still far enough in the past that people are forgetting. Um, it's, it's not relevant, particularly to the younger audience. A lot of people just plain forgot while we were, why we were there because you know, we were in these countries for so long. So part of my interest in collecting and selling those sort of items is to reinvigorate that history and let people know its relevancy or if they um, were too young to remember such events, uh, explain to them why these things matter, why they should know how those events affect things today. That's a great point because I know some of my, my friends who I used to reenact with are now doing, let's say, living history impressions as the first Gulf War. And that's 30 years ago now. And it's kind of there's kind of a thing where it's almost like after 30 years people start to interpret it, and so we're 20 some years into the war on terror. There's going to be people who set up displays now in larger quantities because it is getting towards that 30 year mark, and it's meal time for our cat. So there you go. That's <laughs> She's very excited. Yes, she is very excited. She just jumped off of the couch to go over there, but yeah, it's really that'd be a really interesting thing for for you 
to work on because it seems like people sell what they love to, like what mm-hmm. they love to buy, and that allows them to buy more. And that's actually what I knew. I mean, to be honest, I'm, I'm a pretty big novice when it comes to everything else. I mean, when I was walking around that show, a lot of it was just things I vaguely knew a little bit about, but it was mainly just me walking around going, oh, that looks nice. That's that's very cool. Um, but my main bread and butter, historically speaking, is uh, GWAT stuff. That's mm-hmm. my area of study, so that's what I know. Mm-hmm. We both have uh, kind of these niche interests for anyone listening who doesn't know us personally. Uh, uh, Jed's got the GWAT thing going on, and she and she loves that, and she loves to discuss the intelligence end of it and other things as well. Uh, for me, when I was going around, people were like, well, what are you into? And I'm like, I'm into grave registration stuff, the graves registration service and everything. That, that is a very niche thing, and you don't see a lot of stuff with that at, at shows. So it's good in the sense that we have very niche likes because we have a very small place to live. <laughs> so we only have two bedrooms, and uh, so it's good that we have these very niche things. But I, I don't know if I would resell grave registration stuff knowing that it's so niche. I probably would just sell like I do now. I, I buy and sell, but I'd sell the more generic stuff uh, just to get it to new hands. And I'd probably keep all the grave registration stuff since it is kind of a, it's my thing, but there's also not much out there. Speaking of grave registration, we did see an item that was not grave registration per se, but you might say grave registration adjacent. And that was a World War One dog tag engraving kit. Um, I say it's grave registration adjacent because those dog tags would be used to identify people post-mortem. It was a great kit. It was um, fully stocked. It had all the engraving tools in it. Looked really nice. I'd seen one of those before at a store in Gettysburg. And um, I really thought about it. But again, it came down to, what am I going to do with this? I have nowhere to display it. Yeah, that's, that's the thing, especially when we have limited space. And a cat. And a cat. Who's very curious. Uh, do you want to put it up on the mantle and, you know, just let it sit and collect dust? Or mm-hmm. or what do you want to do with it? And I don't like to see history just collect dust. No, no. And and I think that we're both of that same mindset where it's like, are we going to use this for our interpretation of something? Or are we just going, is it just going to sit? And, and maybe the cat knocks it off of something. The things that we do own, we display proudly. Like, for example, I'm looking at uh, our two matching trench vases right now, which uh, John uh, graciously found for us. And that sits atop the mantle, looking very nice. Uh, it was great to find two that were a set that matched, and uh, that accompanies two of my art pieces. I also have a couple of smaller pieces that I have uh, in what would be considered sort of a votive area. It looks a little like a small shrine. And that's how I dismay, display my small pieces. So unless I have a really good idea of how I'm going to display something in the home, I don't buy it because I don't want it to just be something that collects dust or gets shoved in the closet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see this too often in the in the collecting realm where some people just buy to buy. And, and then they're like, oh, I got too much. And then they don't know what to do with it. Uh, I, I'm guilty of that in my previous life. Let's say I bought too much and I didn't need all that and I became a seller 
because I had to get rid of it. And uh, we see that sometimes where people are like, well, my family wants me to downsize my my stuff or I'm getting older and I don't have a kid and I want to get rid of some things. We hear that a lot when we go around to shows like this. And uh, it really makes you understand that sometimes less is more. And uh, you don't want to end up being a burden uh, for someone else in some way. But you also want to look out for your own happiness, too. If it's what makes you happy, then then do it. Um, but, yeah, the the show was great. Uh, it was a nine-hour drive for us. Mm-hmm. So Through the snow at one point. Yes. We went through three different seasons at one time. We got into western Pennsylvania and into uh, southern Ohio, and it was... Or, excuse me, we went to western Pennsylvania, and it was snowing. We got into southern Ohio near Cincinnati, and it was seventy-five degrees. So yeah, it was it was quite a quite a vacation in that way. We got we got to see snow and rain, and then we got into hot weather, what we would consider hot in February. Uh, but what were your overall impressions of the show, Jen? And would you go back? My impression was very favorable favorable of it. Um, like I said before, great venue. Uh, convenient parking situation, hotel situation, just a lot to see in one day. Would I go back? Um, I would go back in a number of years. It's one of those things where I would not personally go back year after year because it's sort of like you see one show, you've seen it for the next couple of years. Maybe in five or six years, I'd like to go back and see what's changed in in terms of interest and inventory. I like the five-year idea. I think that's really a good one uh, because I used to set up at the shows and I set up at maybe four a year and you're it's redundant and you're looking at the same thing over and over and over again. Things haven't really changed or people haven't sold something yet and they bring it again. So I like the idea of, of waiting for a while between going to mega shows like that and, and, and experiencing it. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a show that I would say you should go see if you're into militaria or collecting, uh, if you're into cultural history, stuff like that. And we do need new blood in there. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we it is kind of like we are seeing a lot of people who are still our parents' age uh, running around and, and doing stuff, and that's great. But we did see a lot of young people, a lot of people who, you know, would be my kid's age if I was, you know, a father. I'd also like to give a shout out to the number of uh, women vendors who are mm. participating. Although I didn't see a lot of women who were specifically searching for things, I was pleased to see the number of women who are participating in sales and running mm. their own booth. So that was nice. Um, after talking to John about this, just the demographics, it seems as though women are into collecting, but they tend to be more into the reenactment side of things. And um, John, who is a veteran reenactor, was explaining to me that usually people get reenactment kits within their own personal networks. They're not as likely to get it as a, at a big show like this. So, um, you know, women are out there. You just need to know where to find them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's there's diversity out there. It's just it, for the reenacting field, it's a, it tends to be a little bit different. You don't go to the show shows to buy your first kit. Uh, you know that that's more of the higher end stuff. Uh, but you do find the lower end stuff. Uh, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. You do find the, 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 the entry level stuff. I came home with a trunk load of it. And Jen can 
you know, say that that is true. Uh, the car was loaded with entry level stuff. And our apartment office is also loaded. Yes. Yes. So it's, it's going to be a lot of me listing and, and selling here for the future. Uh, but I don't want you to be shied away because it is a massive show. It is something that you should see. Uh, even but if you don't buy anything, even if you don't just buy for anything, the experience. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's a great way to go see what is out there and maybe, and see things you won't see in a museum because it's there. It's someone's sword that they had in like 1940 or something. It's not in a museum. It's there. And vendors are also very willing to show things off. If, mm -hmm. um, you mention what you're into and you don't see it on the table, they're very willing to say, well, I've got it right here because Usually they bring too much to put on the table and they rotate it throughout the days. And uh, what I noticed was they usually have a lot stowed under the table. So if they know what you're into, chances are they will bring it out for you if it's not already on display. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I remember being a seller and having that same problem. So that's why sometimes people ask you, what are you into? Because it could be under the table and they don't have it out. They or it could be in a pile. Right. Or it could be in a pile where you can usually find me. I'm usually in the piles of clothes hanging out. Uh, but I also want to say before we uh, go off here that OVMS did not ask us to do this. No. We're doing this on our own. This is self-initiated. We wanted to give you a different thing to think about as far as uh, history is concerned and the concept of buying history uh, for your own collection or for a museum near you or to donate. Uh, and we went to this massive show and we said, we need to talk about this from the historical uh, community as well, because, you know, I'm, I'm trained as a historian. Jen is very into the humanities. We both understand things. She's trained in art. So we can, we can look at this maybe differently than someone else coming in. Uh, and that's not saying we're better than them or we're, we're, we're better at looking at it, but it's a different perspective. And from the historian slash humanities perspective, the, the show provided a, a great look into what is out there and what can be seen in a collection or your local museum. But we are in no way sponsored by OVMS or we're asked to do this. This is what, something we did on our own accord. Uh, but yeah, it was a great time really enjoyed it uh and uh jen didn't mind the car ride so that was that was good that was no good. we get along pretty well together on the car ride we have a great playlist every time we do and uh we make sure we find good food and we found some yeah. amazing food in louisville uh we even found palestinian food in louisville and we we anyone who goes with me somewhere gets to eat well i'll find the i'll find the places so we went from waffle house to palestinian food it was great. Another note on food, because these things are so big and take up so many hours during the day, I would definitely recommend bringing snacks with you. Yes. Uh, you are allowed to bring food and beverage into the expo center. Just, you know, be mindful of what you're doing around all these expensive items. But yeah, keep your blood sugar up. Make sure you're <laughs> hydrated. It's a long day. Yes. Great advice. Uh, we had plenty of water and, and snack bars and and all the protein bars and everything else and that and pretzels and that kept us going mm -hmm. so please keep that in mind you don't have to starve when you go there you don't have to get parched make sure you have it all prepared it's kind of like a camping trip you got to make sure you're all packed up and ready to go mm -hmm. so yeah it was a good time and we'll probably go back in a few years uh and and see it again 
and we really enjoyed it. We didn't spend too much money, which was good <laughs> for us. Uh, but Jen, I'm really happy that you had a good time. And uh, I'm glad that we came up with this list of stuff to talk about because I think a lot of people who have never been would want to know what, what we saw. Yeah, I hope this opens up a whole new world for other people who may not be sure if they want to collect, who may not even be sure if they want to go to shows like this. But I'm here to tell you, even if you don't want to buy or you don't want to be a big spender, there's still something for you to enjoy. Yep, there's something for everybody there. And uh, maybe you'll get the chance to get out and see it or one of the other OVMS shows or, or another military show or something near you. Uh, heck, if you're into vintage there's vintage clothing you could check out too, uh, but there's something for everyone with the collecting world in, in the history field and the humanities. Uh, but we really enjoyed ourselves. We're looking forward to getting back someday. And Jen, thanks for coming on the podcast for the first time and talking about the, the show of shows and your experience there. Thanks for having me on, John. Take care, everybody. Uh, keep reading, and I'll talk to you on the next episode. Bye.